We are black food folks. We are black food folks. Welcome back to Black Desserts. I'm your host, Therese Nelson. Today's episode is an important one about the power and value of culinary training. It follows our first episode, Origin Story, where we spoke with Erica Dupree, Tavelle Bristol-Joseph, and Kamari Mick about their upbringing and how that profoundly shaped their drive and passion within the pastry world. With today's guest, we're going deeper into the complex, exciting, and sometimes challenging world of pastry arts education. When I was planning this series, the Just Desserts episode was going to be about the particularity of the life and training of the fine dining executive pastry chef. I thought it would be important to explore the beauty and challenges of the fine dining world as a way to just oppose it to the other equally valuable and perhaps more accessible spaces many of our other guests occupy. It was to be a conversation about leading in the rarefied air of a complicated segment of our industry. And while it's an interesting conversation to be had, the themes of training were too good and too deep not to make into its own episode. I think the resulting episode gives us an important glimpse into how these chefs have devoted themselves to their work since the early days of their training. While all of our guests today are formally trained, their relationships with that training varies. So let's get into Just Desserts. first guest is legendary pastry chef Kimberly Brock Brown. In July 2017, she made history as both the first African-American and the first female elected to the National Board of the American Culinary Federation, a 90-year-old hospitality industry institution with more than 17,000 chefs among its members. For Brown, it was a culmination of years of culinary experiences leading to one of many coveted goals she set for herself over her illustrious 30 years in pastry. She talks to us about the education, apprenticeships, and training that helped her achieve those goals. Apprenticeships come up a lot in your book, Here I Am. It's a really beautiful memoir, but it also feels like a prescriptive tome on how to be a chef. You talk a lot about your apprenticeship and, and framing how you saw the culinary world. And I'd love if you could share a little bit about that because it's such an interesting part of your story. So when I was searching around and looking to go to college and figure out what I wanted to be, dealing with food, it was not ever taught to me or spoken to me about being a chef or being a culinary. That word just was not used at all. You know, I had a, a counselor who said, oh, you want to be a nurse or a dietitian? I'm like, well, what's that? No, I don't want to be a nurse. As I gravitated towards graduation from high school and went down to Texas where my older sister was living, and I just happened to come across an article in the newspaper of somebody who graduated out the apprenticeship program. I'm like, oh my God, I never heard of it, uh, of apprenticeship, let alone of somebody being a culinarian or becoming a chef, whatever. Like, and it just clicked. The light bulb moment just happened for me. And... The next time they had openings, the fall semester, basically, I was in school. I always will recommend an apprenticeship program to those, A, because it's so economical. I was fortunate enough to get into a hotel that part of their benefit package for the employees was that they reimbursed you for your education when it was related to your job. So basically, my apprenticeship program was free. And it took me a while to grasp that idea from other people <laughs> from the culinary schools because I didn't have that. That was not ever my experience. And so for those who, who want to do culinary, I always, always say, you know, check out finding an apprenticeship program because that is the best economical way to get some real life hands-on experience plus what you learn in the classroom. Day one, what I learned in the class is not necessarily always going to be the way it actually is in real life. You know, so there's always two ways to do things, four ways to do things. It's never, ever going to be only the way to do this is going to be how you learned it in school. And so when you get that real life plus that book knowledge, it just makes you, I, I think, a better prepared person to be in the real world experience of culinary arts. Well, amen. And that's a word. And it's a really interesting point. I know for me in the early part of my training, I didn't have the benefit of apprenticeships. And I always felt like there were these mystical rules that I didn't quite know. Like, I just wasn't privy to them or it made assessing success difficult. 
Of course, later on, I discovered those rules were arbitrary, but knowing the rules help you develop a frame of reference for possibilities. So I love that. Can you talk a little bit about formalized apprenticeships and the ACF or the American Culinary Federation? Yes, yes, yes. I do know I was the first African-American female to graduate out of that program back in 1984. Mm. Come on, history. Okay, okay. So I don't know who that, and I always wanted to know, nobody could tell me who the first African-American male was. And so in the apprenticeship program, it's so European. The Europeans have been Mm -hmm. doing it for decades, centuries, whatever. You learn the craft, and they start their their school education starts a a lot earlier than ours. So we've been a little bit behind the curve as far as learning some of the things that we need to learn. I've always have said, you know, especially now when economics are so, so out the roof for, for a lot of people, that, you know, if, if you can find a way to get into a culinary apprenticeship program, and the American Culinary Federation, you really get placed at the job, uh, and then you get the experience of working there and those benefits that that job offers, because you are actually an employee, but you also get That's the education right. in the book night, in the book knowledge, you know, and, and you get paid. Why would you not? Because who, who can afford to go to school and not, you know, pay rent? Or whatever. So while you while you're earning a paycheck and getting that hands-on knowledge, because it's part of the package deal that job is teaching you as well, and they're nurturing you and and guiding you through your career path. So you've gone through the whole program, you've gotten your paper, and now you're out in the world. What does that first job look like? Well, I stayed at the hotel I was in because much to the chagrin of the executive chef, that was a really really hands-on productive pastry shop, you know, started at three o'clock in the morning with the bakers coming in. I mean, I could walk in at seven o'clock in the morning and, and the bakers that already had, you know, they already had fresh made tortillas and, and salsas and guacamoles. Man, that, that's how you start your day, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. and, 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 and of course, with the fresh croissants coming out the oven. But I stuck there because I figured it was the best place for me to learn. I, I was loving it. I saw the opportunity. I knew that I've never seen and never heard of the chef coming from the saucier. Like, you know, it came from the restaurants, or, but I could be an executive pastry chef because I'm working with the one who's trained them for the corporation. Like, I'm going to stay right here. I'm good. So I stayed there for next year and a half. I learned how to run that shop. I learned how to do some more centerpieces. I, you know, I learned stuff so that I was able to get promoted and transferred to another hotel as the executive pastry chef. So that's what that first job looked like. I love that. So apprenticeship moving to Hilton Head, back to Atlanta, back to Charleston, your career is doing what careers do, right? You Opportunities come, you evolve, you see the landscape change, you decide what you want for your personal ambitions. But through it all, you're still in the ACF. Talk about the regionality, because I think that's an interesting point. Sometimes I think people don't think about the ACF because they might not have an active chapter where they are. Is that something you are concerned about in terms of where people have access to a chapter? See, and that's what a lot of people just miss. I tell people all the time, it's not always what you know, but who you know that gets you in the door. And ACF mm. has been such a great way for me to network, open that door, make that opening just a little bit wider for me to get in and go through it and meet these people who know those people who, you know, who can get me there. You know, and, and it's such a network of people. And you have international access as a member of ACF, you're a member of WAX, World Association of Chef Society. And, you know, and so if I wanted to go and work overseas, I can, you know, put an email in, send it, or talk to a chef here who's from that country I might want to go. And, you know, they make a phone call, they'll send an email, and you're in. That's how that network works, you know? And we, we miss out on so much because we're not a part of that network. I mean, I love black people. Don't get me wrong. But we are only still 13% of the population. We are not in a position yet to move and make sure people get the network, get everything that's out there that we can grab our hands on. You know, you got to you gotta network. You got to reach out to other people. I mean, you just have to. If you want to grow and experience and learn. One of the themes that I'm sort of fascinated by is in the pastry world, that the ways in which you train, I feel like your training is continuous, um, much more rigorous in some ways than the culinary world, like the sort of savory world, the networks, because in sort of restaurant spaces or even hotels or just the spaces that pastry chefs occupy, this just feels like a a particularity to the ways that pastry chefs navigate their careers. That truly comes from the ignorance, and I don't mean that in a bad way, just the ignorance of that chef or whoever is leading that program. 
Because most times, nine out of ten times, the executive chef is not pastry trained or aware. You know mm. what I'm saying? And so when when you cut that pastry staff first, because you got to make cuts, you don't want to cut, but you know. Like, I can't. I, I got to have all my toys and all my stuff in order. So if I don't know that, then, okay, I'm going to cut some of that. Because I can buy a cake. I can buy an eclair. I can buy a mix mm. of the powder. Right, but I I can't buy this this demi gloss or you know you can, but I make a demi gloss. So I know I'm good on that one. I can do that, but I can't do that so much. So I don't have that much respect or understanding of it. So I can buy that though, and I'll be okay. You know, so I think it just comes from a, a lack of knowledge and understanding, and because of not having a good pastry chef can break you. Really, I mean, even in the hotel or the restaurant, there's been many times front desk in the hotel has screwed up. The reservation, somebody's mad, ticked off, whatever, blah, blah. It's the pastry chef that sends the amenity, right? Yes. You get the strawberries, the cake, the whatever, whatever. Or you want to go to club floor level, it's mostly about the bake shop. You got the croissants, danishes, muffins, you got cookies and brownies, you got afternoon tea. It's the bake shop that sweetens the deal, literally, and makes the customer happy. You know, if you screwed up something on dinner, the chip wasn't right, you send them pastries and pedophores and cookies and something to go. It's sweet. Because I can remember I had um, an intern when I was at, uh, in Asheville. And he came in. He, he rotated into the bake shop. He off the rip told me, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be no pastry chef. I want to be back in that restaurant. Blah, 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 blah. I said, okay, fine. Not a problem. But for these six weeks, you can be in that corner over there. You can cut every fruit I need to have cut. You can scoop all the ice cream in, whatever. That'd be your job. But you can be in this bake shop. Right? And that, he didn't want to learn anything. And that was fine with me. Because I'm not going to waste my time. You know, and so we ran into each other. Actually, got hired as a garbage when I was here in Charleston. And he, the first thing, I think I was on vacation when he got hired. First thing he did when I came in, I'm so sorry. I'm apologizing right now because I wish I had learned. Da, 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 da. There's so many times when he was working other places and they needed a pastry person, called out sick, got fired, got whatever. And he had to be the one thrown in there and didn't know nothing. Right? Could, didn't want to know. But now all of a sudden he's in a situation where he needed to know. And like now he's kicking himself because like, oh my God, what was I thinking? You know, but everybody doesn't have that light bulb moment at the moment, right? You're supposed to be getting education. You know, and, and you cut yourself off. It's still it's still food. You know, you never know. There's not a restaurant anywhere that doesn't have some kind of bacon and pastry in it. Be it the cracker, the bread, the bun, the cookie, the brownie, or whatever. Everybody always has to have some kind of bacon and pastry program. Whether you buy it. Are you making it or both? That's right. I always feel like I'm like a frustrated patient chef. I should have, you know, <laughs> one of those things I wish I would have gone back then and sort of got that missing piece of my training. Um, it does feel to me to be this sort of superpower that patient chefs have, that your technical abilities have to be so home. There's no real room for a lack of rigor. You taste it. You taste the sort of frivolity when a patient chef is not on their game and there's no place to really hide. But there are many sacrifices that we all make to give ourselves over to this work. We want to be good. We want to be proficient. We want to sort of be the best at this thing that is... the One of the joys of this thing for me is being able to put those whites on every day. Show what... The essay does not matter. I can remember writing a letter it was in response, it was a, a reporter, editor, writer from whatever trade magazine. He gave a very on-point, truthful critique of one of the conventions that we had just had for ACI. And I agree with everything he said, right? And so in my letter that I wrote to him, I said, I felt like because he was talking about the lack of diversity in the mm. programs that had happened at that last convention. And I said, I totally agree. And you know, I had a group of my friends, my, my guys from South Carolina, who were all white men, good friends for years. And then I had a group of my buddies on the other side. I'm the glue that binds. The group of my friends on the mm-hmm. other side from other southern states, all black. And But we all we always hung out together and, you know, whatever, whatever. And I'm like, we sitting here looking at each other like, He's, what, is, what is this? You know, and he's just totally shocked. There's only one woman. He got 20-something demos. Only one woman. Nobody black. And, you know, whatever. And so when he wrote his, 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 his piece, I like, oh my God, you're so right. And I've always felt that I had like a triple whammy on me. It wasn't a triple threat. Being black, being female, and then being a pastry chef. It was like I had three strikes against me from the rip. So how do I make those inroads? How do I get advanced? How do I get ahead of this? Because I felt like you got to do more. You got to have more than the average other white person, male. Right? And then I'm a pastry chef. 
And so when when I'm dealing with other people who are not pastry, who have less respect for or look down on or less than they are as a savvy person, you know, and then being female, like, oh, my God. And so I, I've always have said, you know, we got to do more. We got to do this. So h- how would I not want to network? How would I not want to keep educating myself and find and seek those opportunities? What I admire most about Chef Kimberly is her profound belief in her own ability. She's managed to maintain decades of leadership and growth while not only opening doors for other women in pastry, but also standing in that gap and ushering them through by consistently holding space for them and modeling leadership so that they be able to pay it forward. We'll be right back after this message from our sponsor. While we're on the topic of rich desserts, let's talk a little bit about Talenti Gelato and Sorbetto. This Argentinian-inspired gelato maker spends a minimum of 45 minutes trying almost every batch of their traditionally crafted flavors, from Madagascan vanilla bean to Mediterranean mint, making it a reality to enjoy the highest quality desserts without leaving your home. Is your mouth watering yet? Follow Talenti on Instagram to see their full suite of delicious flavors and discover the indulgent new Talenti Gelato Layers Collection. Next, we're chatting with the brilliant Jessica Craig, who has led the pastry programs of multiple restaurant groups over the last 13 years. Her focus, technical expertise, and professional resume make her one of the most quintessential executive pastry chefs working. I'm such a fan of her work, and it was actually this conversation and her reflections on how her education helped shape her career that made it clear that we needed a whole episode on training. Here's Jessica. It's funny because I actually grew up on Long Island, and let me start with my parents are from Jamaica. So when my mom immigrated to the state, she lived in Queens. But the truth of the matter is, just for the sake of us kids, she made the conscious decision to move to Long Island. But fast forward to once I'm a little bit older and I'm in high school, I'm trying to figure out what it is I want to do with my life. Initially, and especially going to private school, you're kind of forced to focus on white collar jobs, whether it be doctor, lawyer, things of that nature. So looking at my options, I'm like, oh, I'll I'll get into law. That seems like a good job to get into. And I took a civil law class and learning more about how law works. I was just like, I know this isn't what I want to do. And you know, just having a heart-to-heart conversation with um, one of my older siblings, she was just like, Jessica, you're always in the kitchen. Why don't you look into cooking? And I'm looking at her and I was like, I could do that? And she's like, yeah, you could do that. She's like, it's called culinary arts. I was like, culinary arts? Like, how did I go through school and never ever heard the phrase culinary arts in my whole entire life up into that point? So then I started doing more research into it. And I started looking at that time, this is what, 2001, I graduated high school, 2002. At the time, there didn't seem to be that many culinary schools. So I was looking at Johnson & Wales, I was looking at CIA, ended up going to New York Institute of Technology. And I went to the Central Islip campus on Long Island. So it was literally in my backyard. I lived (laughs) like not even a five minute drive away from it. And I remember my mom going with me to the open house when I was still in high school and learning about the program. And the whole entire process, my mom was like, you can change your mind at any point. You can change your mind. Even once I was in the program, she was like, you know, it's okay to change your major. Happens to kids all the time. Like the whole entire time, she was just like trying to like poke like little, at any point, you can change your mind. You can change your mind. And, but little did she know, the more that I did it, the more that I fell in love with it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I feel like there's something about that immigrant kid trope that's part of your story, because there's certainly that notion of economic security and white collar jobs and having to sort of convince your parents that this is a viable option that you actually get a degree in. And it sounds like once you got her on board, you thrived in culinary school. Once I graduated culinary, I 
proceeded to get my bachelor's in hospitality management. And I did my first year at the Central ISO campus. And that year they decided to close the Central ISO campus. So then I had to commute all the way to Old Westbury for my last year. And I did as much online as possible because at, at that point, the whole idea of online classes was kind of just beginning. But the program, even though it wasn't a very well-known school, it was still a beautiful program. You know, like I learned so much and our classes were super small. You know, I know someone who graduated the program and at the point when he got into the program, the program was dying out. So he was a lot of times the only person (laughs) in the class and have to have one on one time with these chefs, with all this knowledge. And in my case, just being in, in a class full of like maybe 10 to 12 people and to get that individual attention. And from early on, I remember certain professors taking me to the side and he's just like, Jessica, these flavors that you pulled out of like this sauce, I don't even understand it. And I'm standing there and I'm just like, I, here I am following the recipe. I'm listening to you when you lecture because, you know, there's lecture and then, you know, you go into the kitchen to actually cook and do things. And like their reaction to me, like floored me a lot of times because I, I remember a brunch class where I made like white chocolate strawberry waffles and I just went to town, you know, with all mm. the different garnishes and things. And I'm like, this is going to be so delicious. And I'm just like, I'm just doing my thing and I'm just doing what makes sense in my head. And being someone who's never worked at a restaurant ever and to be able to do this kind of stuff and get the reaction that I did from some of my professors. It was, it was nothing short of amazing. So you go through your training, you, your mom is, you, you know, she's kind of waiting you out and you sort of stay with it and, and <laughs> graduate, <laughs> um, graduating. Are you working during culinary school? Is it something, I mean, you, are you focusing fully on coursework or are you in an industry at the time as well? Well, <laughs> this part is really funny. Um, I guess being a true immigrant kid, <laughs> it's like, yeah, I was born in the States, but like I'm surrounded by not American things. The first year, a part of my financial aid was work study. So for the first mm. semester, I did work study, right? Second semester, I didn't work. And then the way the program worked was that after a year, that summer, you're expected to do what they call an externship. And to be honest, to this day, I don't see the difference between an internship and an externship. Yeah, with both words, either you get paid or you don't and you get experience. That's all there is to that. So I did my externship and I stayed with them for a a teensy winty bit of time past um, my extern hours. And from that point forward, like going to school full time, I was also working full time. And it was wild to think about because... To this day, I don't understand how I did it because to have coursework, to have finals, midterms, papers, readings, and I was still working in kitchens, but that's the route that I took because I was able to apply what I was learning in school to real life. And then I was also thinking, all right, if I work through school, that'll help to speed up my career. And I definitely think that definitely helped. You know, when you get out of school, you're making no money. And being a true Jamaican, I was working like upwards of three jobs at one point. But when is it when does it occur to you that you're gonna focus on pastry? That started once I graduated the culinary school aspect of my program. Once I graduated that and I and I believe around that time I had a job at a seafood restaurant um on Long Island where I was working cold station, but part of my cold station duties was plating and prepping their desserts. Mm-hmm. And don't get me wrong, like it, it wasn't like anything spectacular or even all that great. However, I had creative license to plate things however I wanted. And once I got a little taste of that, I just wanted more. And then I'm I'm hatching in my brain. I'm like, okay, I'm going for my bachelor's degree. I cannot spend money on going to just pastry school. You know, like I don't have unlimited resources. Setting aside, I was pretty much paying for school myself, you know, taking out loans and things. So with all that in my head, I was just like, okay, where can I work? And then I started researching. And then I got a job at Garden City Hotel, but I had to apply so many times 
and my resume kept getting rejected. Like I wasn't hearing back from them no matter how much I would follow up and, and all those other things. But once they came to my school for um, a job fair, the sous chef that worked there, I went up to him and all right, let me preface. I'm an introvert. However, I was so determined. I went up to him and I spoke to him and I handed him my resume and I explained to him that I had been to HR at Garden City Hotel and for whatever reason I couldn't get through. And he was upset because he was like, I've never seen your resume. Mm. Mm. Did you ever sort of figure out what that was about? I totally think it was a race issue. It was definitely a race issue. See, especially having grown up going to private school and knowing the rules of private school, like you can only dress this way, you can only wear your hair this way. They had rules like that for that hotel, for their for their employees. So when I worked there, I had to keep my hair covered because I always kept my hair braided. And I wasn't mm. about to take my braids out and like get a perm because <laughs> they don't like the fact that I wear braids. So I wanted the experience. And again, I think just the growing up on Long Island and just growing up in a majority of a white space, like I know how to adapt, you know? And so my way of adapting is just like, all right, if my hair is that much of an issue, I'll keep it covered. When he told me he had never seen my resume, then I started to think back to my interactions with HR and even just the simple way of the way HR looked at me when I showed up and just the looking up and down, I'm not going to change who I am. And I, I clearly can't change my skin tone. And it's one of those things where my name is Jessica Craig. Jessica Craig is a white Irish Scottish name. Easily. Yes. You know? <laughs> so, and also speaking the way that I speak, uh, like back then, I'll never forget it. A lot of interviews I showed up on, the person interviewing me looks confused. Because it's just like, you, you're Jessica? Yes, I'm Jessica. <laughs> I am Jessica. I think there's something really interesting about who has agency in this, in this work. A lot of times we talk about representation as if that's the only thing that matters. And it's really, I think, less about visibility and representation and much more about who has power. And you've been in positions the bulk of your career where you are running the pastry program. You are the person in charge. What mm -hmm. does that look like and how do you sort of utilize that agency? One of the things that I've been most impacted by is watching you at different events or just seeing you in sort of a leadership role bring up other young women of color on your teams. And so there's something about that that is important to sort of lift up because I think that there's not enough conversation about asking for power. Oh, most definitely. I, I feel like my reach as far as being able to help other women of color enter the industry or enter into leadership roles didn't really come about until I entered the space in New York City because like I mentioned most of the kitchens on Long Island were pretty much mostly white you know I, I was usually the only black person on staff especially in the kitchen so with all that being said it wasn't until I had my position at Lartuzzi and I had the opportunity where you know New York City is way more diverse and also on a certain level once it was put out there that I was the pastry chef there. I was getting lots of notes from chefs, upcoming cooks in the industry, just looking for some kind of guidance. I've had a couple of people who were working on school projects where I, you know, was happy to help. Whatever I can do, I'm more than happy to do because I know what it's like to have that barrier. And, and, and I think it's important to help others get in because there are, there's just so many barriers. You are in your bachelor's program. You are finishing that up. You've been working multiple jobs because that's how that's what you do. You've been working all this time in the industry, but it occurs to you that this sort of Garden City Hotel job, like that's where you really want to sort of delve into pastry. You see the barriers, but you actually you end up getting in or no? Oh yeah, I I got in. It, it was it was actually pretty funny. I I ended up getting in. 
And I ended up doing really, really well there. I learned so, so much. I learned about, because the pastry kitchen there was beautiful and they had a section for breads and big batch cake mixing and baking and things. They had a separate room for that. Then there was a room that was like, I guess it was essentially the cold room and I was learning how to temper chocolate. I was learning how, and and it was old school tempering because I actually kind of drove the staff crazy because having come from culinary school, there's just something very soothing to me about tempering chocolate on a marble. Um, mm-hmm. And I would, and I would honestly do it all the time. So I learned how to temper chocolate. I learned how to do petit fours. I learned how to make a souffle. And the chef there was a Belgian man, European, of course. And it was interesting because, I mean, clearly he had a high standard and I will never forget one time I got upset because for whatever reason, especially being a young cook, I, I made my souffle base and it just wasn't rising the way it should have because we baked the souffles to order. So I was baking my souffle and I was noticing it didn't get quite the rise it should have. And I was trying to get it to pass and the chef was not having it. And it was definitely a lesson in standard. You know what I mean? And instead of letting him know and maybe getting, you know, the guests to change their mind on what they ordered and just let him know, like, maybe we should 86 the souffle. I'm just like, well, shouldn't we send them something? And he's like, no, he's like, not if it's not what it's supposed to be. And that, yeah, I I learned a lot on that job. Now, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about this sort of leading teams, teams that are going to be just by nature, the way things are set up, going to be disproportionately white. <laughs> and so what does it look like to show up as a Black woman responsible for multi-million dollar restaurant groups and their pastry programs and that, that sort of push-pull, but rising to the ranks you have in your career to sort of get to the, you know, outside of ownership, stake, this is the sort of quintessential highest point in terms of responsibility and sort of agency in the pastry world as it relates to restaurants. How do you sort of negotiate your space? Well, for me, it's interesting because my first executive pastry chef role was out in the Hamptons and it was something that I actually fought. And and what I mean by thought is I it wasn't even like I was fighting to become the executive pastry chef. I was fighting to not become the executive pastry mm. chef. Mm-hmm. Um, the position scared me. It truly did. It scared me because I saw my other pastry chefs and mentors work this position and and the difficulty that they had with maneuvering that position. I had a hard time wrapping my head around that. There's also imposter syndrome, right? So like, I'm thinking like, I've never been to pastry school. Like the thought of who am I to take on this position, you know? But the first pastry chef that was there, Molly, when she left, she told them, she's like, I think Jessica's more than capable of doing this. And when they Mm. sat me down and asked me how I felt, I was like, no, mm -mm. no, I don't know what she said to you, but no. Interesting. So then they hired someone else. You know, I I pretty much encouraged the executive chef. Um, his name is Joe. I I encouraged him to look for someone else, or maybe like even like a partnership, as far as like maybe like a partnership of the position with someone else. And they had a few people come through to interview and trail and and do the whole thing, but nobody was taking the position. And I went through that summer essentially doing it and so at the end of the summer once September rolled around you know and my chef he pulled me to the side he's like all right Jessica now I know we've had this conversation before mm-hmm. <laughs> and I know you've said no however you did it this summer and you did a really good job and then like he he gave this whole spiel and I let him talk and I was just like, when he was done, I looked at him and I was just like, I actually enjoyed myself. I'd love to be the executive pastry chef. It was one of those things that I feared. And then once I was thrown into it and realized in many ways, I was already doing it. If my chef isn't there, I have to step in. And I guess it's one of those moments where I didn't realize how much I knew until I, I was actually doing it. 
Jessica Craig is one of the most focused and professionally excellent chefs I know. Yet she's also one of the most humble chefs you'll ever meet. She has a peacefulness to her leadership that I wish were more commonplace in our industry. And what I really took away from our conversation was that when you're in right relationship with your calling, the work you produce and the reach of your work is limitless. Mame So is our next guest. Born in Senegal, Mame is one of the most inspiring and innovative pastry chefs I've ever experienced. She has such a deft hand at combining French technique and the flavors of the African diaspora. As one of the first chefs I encountered who managed to marry tradition and modernity in the fine dining space. Her resume includes leading the teams at famed New York City dessert restaurant Spot Dessert Bar, moving her way up the ranks of the kitchens of Jonathan Waxman and Marcus Samuelson, and most notably her time as the executive pastry chef at Alexander Smalls and Cecil and Minton's restaurants. In our conversation, we talked on a number of topics, but it's when she talks about how she used every professional experience as an opportunity that made this conversation so singular. Here's me. My name is Mame So, and I am a pastry chef, and currently I live in Miami, Florida. I was born and mostly raised in Dakar, Senegal. So growing up there, I used to help my aunt cook, you know, just do little things and be in the kitchen with her and hang out. I think the spark Mm. for me started in high school. I first went to high school in Queens, New York. And then I transferred over to Park West High School in Hell's Kitchen, and they had a culinary program. So that's when the spark started. That's when I started it. And then I became involved also with CCAP. Park West High School because they were there. And that's when I started my career in the hospitality industry. Um, I studied in culinary because I wanted to learn the basics of the culinary side of it, knife skills, making sauces and things like that, which actually greatly helped me to become a better pastry chef. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about this high school is free and you sort of have this this kind of context for mentorship. It makes you just a bit better and more prepared when you get to culinary school. So with CCAP, basically they're in um, high schools that are, have those programs, the culinary programs. They're in New York City, Philadelphia, L.A., and a couple of other cities. When I started, you know, they came to the school, they spoke to people, and basically you had to write an essay as to why you wanted to become a chef or be work in the industry. And then once you were accepted, their training program is honestly one of the top ones in the country. Mm-hmm. You know, I studied, I would go after school to the office to study, answer questions, get training. And then the summer training program you had to do, mm-hmm. I believe it was for eight weeks. And you had to commit to it. You had to be on time. You had to dress professionally. They provided you when you were doing the competition for, well, they provided you with like a knife kit, a bag with serrated knife, chef's knife, and a paring knife to kind of get you started with the basics. So you get that. And then the training program is pretty extensive. You know, you have to be professional. If you're in the kitchen, you have to dress professionally. If you're in front of the house, when you came to training, you had to be in slacks, a white button-up or a button-up sh- shirt tucked in and possibly a tie and a jacket. So it's it's mm. very professional. At that young age, you're learning, like, if you really want to do this and you're part of this program, you have to take it seriously, which is great. That's right. That's right. You know? And then my junior year, I applied for scholarships. So you have to start at your junior year for the scholarships. So you start your junior year by applying, and then you get chosen. Then you do the first test, which is making a traditional French omelet, which is not as easy as it sounds. Mm. Um, and then if you make it past that, then your senior year is when you do the main competition, you know, which is in a professional kitchen with professional chefs and judges watching you work. Uh, so for... When I was doing the scholarship, I knew I wanted to go to school for pastry arts. That was okay. for sure. But when I was doing the internship and I got my summer job with Amuse Restaurant, which was in Chelsea, which was owned mm-hmm. by Jerry Hayden and yeah. his wife, Claudia Fleming, I was doing savory. So I okay. was in charge of the Garmanger station and doing private events upstairs 
So the thing was for three months during the summer. And then basically when it was done, they hired me to go on board as a full-time employee. Awesome. This is before culinary school. Yes, this was still in high school. So you've been in the U.S., you sort of experienced it in high school, CCAP comes onto your radar, you are going through this training, you sort of think in pastry, but sort of are getting experiences that are on the savory side because you know it's all going to kind of inform this pastry life. CIA versus French culinary, what year is this and what sort of tip the scales for you to make your decision? Well, I graduated high school in 2005. And then I started at the FCI right after, which is now the International Culinary Center in, in Soho. I started right after. What tipped the scales for me was I already was working in New York. You know, I wanted to, and the FCI program was for me more what I was looking for. You know, that intense yeah. training program, which is just hands-on. Like Even when I started that first week, before you can even start, you had to pass a safety and sanitation class yeah that you take for the first week and you know what I always remember about that is like okay you're in cooking school there's no tables there's no chairs to sit down on we took the test standing up you know we took those classes standing up you know I was like that's awesome yeah and also I think there's something really particular about it being so I mean it's in the center of the city right this sort of the vibrance of New York City as a food town um to sort of be immersed in that way especially since you've already been working all this time you were sort of hitting the ground really running um talk about fish culinary because it's a a really particular place I think there's some really amazing chefs that have come out of that that training they have a very particular philosophy and just sort of a, a much more nimble kind of approach to culinary training so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your experience there, focusing on pastry there and kind of what you're thinking of in terms of like career path as you're developing and kind of going through their training. I mean, for me, the thing I loved about going there was, again, it was very hands-on. Like we were making traditional desserts and French items, I guess you can say. And it was very hands-on, like making puff pastry from scratch, making croissants, you know, doing all these desserts from scratch. And then you had all these amazing professional chefs who come in to also teach. Like, you know, my classes, we had Ron Ben Israel come in for when we did the wedding cake section for flowers and things like that. We had Jacques Torres when we were doing the chocolate section to come in and teach also. And then another thing was we were in charge of the students ordering the items that we needed. So there was divided into different groups and each group was responsible for something doing the ordering doing the receiving and things like that which made you feel like you were in a restaurant you know these are all things that you have to know or it takes place in professional kitchens so it was great to learn that early on there seems to be or feels to be maybe more room for playfulness and adventurousness with reference to like the influences and flavors you bring to your desserts. Certainly, your work at the Cecil and that work was so diasporically centered that the sort of cultural background is going to inform the way you craft in those desserts. But I wonder if, as you sort of in this very French training, are you thinking of or considering in those early moments, especially during training, about cultural flavors? Like, are you thinking of what you bring to your craft? Is it occurring to you to consider culture at this point? Yeah, it's always been there for me. Mm-hmm. I knew I wanted to at some point, you know, bring my culture into it. I knew that first I I wanted to learn the basics of it. I wanted to crawl before mm-hmm. running. Mm-hmm. I wanted to learn the basics and really understand the basics because growing up in Senegal all the bakeries there are French bakeries you know I grew mm-hmm. up eating Mufres and you know all these things eclairs so I knew what those were growing up there and eating it so for me it was okay learn the basics learn how things work first learn why mm-hmm. when you're making puff pastry you have to do it this way you have to add a little bit of vinegar to the dough and things like that learn those reasons first and the science behind it and then use that to build my own profile and my own flavors. That's you know, right. And 
add my culture into it. That was always going to be the goal. And it's still the goal. You know, I want to be able to have my own bakery and chocolate shop hopefully soon. And that's going to be the goal where Senegal and all of just who I am as a human being, as a Black woman, as an African woman is represented. Can you talk a little bit about the power of restaurant groups? What are you picking up in terms of ambition, technique, and developing your own taste? It's definitely ambitious because like you said, you know, you're going into it. And I'll take, I think Cecil and Minton's for me would be a perfect example of that. You're taking two completely different concepts. Yes, Cecil and Minton, in a way they had similarities, but also they're two different, very different cultures. Yeah. You know, so the challenge was, okay, making Cecil stand out and also making Minton stand out and not have those two kind of like feel the same, you know, with the desserts aspect of it. The great thing about that for me was it was in the same building. I was in one kitchen Mm -hmm. doing everything from the same kitchen. (laughs) Compared to others, yeah, when you're in different restaurant groups and you're going from one kitchen to another, um, which can be challenging, one, for just traveling, two, for staff. You know, you may have a great staff here, but not so great staff at the other place. And sometimes they don't want you to, you know, cross-utilize certain ingredients for food costs and all these things. So that can be a challenge. It's, it's definitely ambitious, but I love that challenge. You know, like mm. I thrive off that challenge and being able to make it happen. So with Spot, you know, I interviewed with Pichet for the job and then he offered me the position. And I went in there and, you know, first of all, he was extremely open and welcoming that was one of the things that like I will absolutely never forget he was in mm-hmm. because at the time you know he was this big time pastry chef coming from all these amazing restaurants John George and all these things and I, I was nervous because I'm like oh my god is he even gonna like give me an opportunity I sent in my resume didn't think I was gonna get a call back because that happened so many times and he reached out and we spoke and then I went after work to go talk to him and when I did the stage and I was just like, I fell in love with everything that he was doing in that little kitchen and mm. everything was made from scratch, you know? And I was just like, wow, that's amazing. And the flavors he was using and the way he was doing things, he was just like, this is me on a plate. You know, it's very whimsical, very flavorful desserts. And just, like I said, he's a godsend to me and I love him dearly. And, you know, to this day, he's like, I can honestly say my only mentor in this industry, you know, Mm. he's he's made me feel so welcome and I will never forget that. Being there, it was an amazing experience learning from him and just him being open because he was consulting. So he was there for a while working hands on next to each other and the other cooks. And then before he left, he told the owners that I would be his pastry chef and his go-to person for everything. And then Mm. once I got the hang of everything, you know, he started it's like, oh, change, you can change this, do a special, and this, you know, in a way challenged me and pushed yeah. me to be better and more creative. You sort of are getting all these tools you need to be in charge of a, a concept as brilliant as that, and this space where it's all about like whimsy, creativity, and sort of personality. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what that kind of freedom did to sort of your vocabulary like are you adding your own spin on things how much of the diaspora are you bringing into it like just what the level of artistry and just over the top whimsy um for some years like what is that what does that do to your vocabulary I mean it expands it it opens it opened me up to a whole new world basically at first when I started slowly kind of like taking charge and taking lead, you know, I would consult him on things. And then it became a thing where he was just like, you know, you can change this. You can do this. You can do this. You know, it was like, okay, let's do a cauliflower custard, you know, dessert, you know, and things like that. So he just allowed me to be opened. I didn't bring the jazz bar into it. It was an Asian based mm-hmm. dessert bar. So, but it opened me up to a whole new level of flavors and ingredients that I wasn't aware of. You know, that's why I was fell in love with Yakult and drinking Yakult because we used to make ice cream with it and, you know, things Mm. like that. So it opened me up to that level. It gave me more responsibility as far as doing the scheduling. So I'm like sitting there like, okay, you know, I have to make a schedule now. What makes sense with the labor Mm. costs? What makes sense for the business as far as 
how to schedule people. And then it was like, okay, you're in charge of ordering now. Okay, what makes sense with ordering the food costs and making sure, you know, we're not wasting and cross-utilizing and things like that. So all those responsibility, it gave me more confidence to be, you know, it definitely gave me more confidence. And I think if it wasn't for him and being who he is and just being an amazing and open person, I wouldn't have been able to accomplish those things with his help. It is, in a way, from the outside looking in a pastry chef's dream job, being in a dessert bar and just, you know, you're not worrying about somebody using your spatula for garlic something and it smells like garlic (laughs) or whatever. You know, everything smells sweet and spicy, but it was all great, but the pay wasn't that great. And yeah. I was like, okay, you know, I, I, and I made the conscious decision to go in because I needed that experience and I wanted yeah. that experience, you know, and in some ways it's opened up a lot more for me. And I have this lifetime mentor and someone I look up to. I hope we sort of are able to kind of contextualize this, like from the consumer's point of view, the joyfulness and sort of the intangibility of this sort of ethereal nature of the dessert world is because we consume it so quickly and it's sort of effervescent, whimsical thing. Mm-hmm. We don't sort of consider what goes into it, right? Like you take the bite of that 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 experience, but you don't know how many hours went into preparing it, took, it or yeah. Like what. Yeah. So I just wanted to. I love that. I appreciate you lifting up the, this idea of sacrifice and what it takes to really sort of do this work at high levels. Because absolutely, it's, if your whole soul over to this thing and you know it takes a toll yeah it does you know and then for me it's like yeah you're taking a bite of that ice cream it tastes amazing but that ice cream for me making it at least took 24 hours between making yep. it letting it sit spinning it making sure it doesn't overspin and making sure it still has that flavor from when I made it to when it's fun and it's cold now, you know, and all these things go into it and then you also have to be and I say this all the time you're a therapist when you're in that management level in the industry. You know, you have to deal with emotions of other people, whether it's the higher ups and the people that you're supervising. You have to deal with all those things. You have to deal with their needs. You have to deal with the needs of the people you answer to. So mm. it's kind of hard to deal with yourself when you have all those things going on at once. This episode came about because the chefs had so many pearls to drop, we couldn't help but highlight their thoughts in a full episode. While these chefs all took traditional routes to education, I think they also lift up the necessity of continued rigor and tenacity in developing craft. In some of the next few episodes, you'll hear from folks with far less traditional pathways to their lives and pastry, but I think you'll still hear the common thread of passion and rigor in all their stories. I want to say thank you to our incredible guests for this episode, Kimberly Brock Brown, Jessica Craig, and Mame So. You can learn more about this episode at blackfoodfolks.com. And if you like what you're hearing and feel inclined, please spread the word about the series, rate and comment on the show, and tune in again in two weeks for more Black Desserts. I'm your host, Therese Nelson. Thanks for listening. Black Desserts is a special Black Food Folk series presented by Clay Williams and Colleen Vincent with support from Amber Mayfield and Melandra Hasek, produced by the brilliant creative team at Weststone Media. <laughs>